blessed us in our revival services because we added four new families to the church. And the Baptist minister said, well, that's all fine and well, brother. But the Lord actually blessed us more because he added six families to our church. And the Presbyterian minister just kind of smiled. And he said, well, I hate to say this, guys, but the Lord blessed us even more than all of you because he removed 10 of our most cantankerous families. You know, as I thought about that, you know, it's kind of funny. But the lesson really is, and I don't think we believe it, but sometimes the greatest blessing God can give us is not in giving us what we want, but in removing something from our lives that is holding us back spiritually. All right, that was for free. Now we move on and we continue our study in the book of Revelation, and I've entitled the message this morning, The End of Money. The End of Money. Father, I just thank you for the worship and the worship team has just been awesome to just be in your presence and that's really what it's all about and that's what we're running to as we get to the closing chapters now of the book of revelation and so i thank you i thank you that the end point is ultimately just you just being in your presence and i just ask that that would continue on as we meet together and look at your word now may you just give us a heart just a heart for you and your work. I pray for soft hearts and ears to hear. I pray for myself that I would truly speak your words. Fill me up. Fill this place now to even greater measure. May Jesus just be exalted. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. Now, in understanding Revelation, like I said last week, one of the critical points in order to understand Revelation is you have to understand Babylon. Babylon is one of the major keys to understanding, as I said, the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation tells us that there is a coming world ruler, a ruler who will actually rule and dominate this world for a short period of time. And the obvious question is, how in the world would someone be able to do that? And it almost seems ludicrous on the surface to believe that there actually could be a world ruler that will dominate and control the world for a short period of time. Yet the Bible assures us that this is exactly what's going to happen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 17, and we'll look at verse 6. It says this, I saw that the woman... Now, remember, the woman here is the great prostitute. It's Babylon. And as I said, Babylon represents many things. First and foremost, though, Babylon represents the godless world system of pride, power, greed, immorality, and ultimately, we're going to see money. Money. Now, watch this. The woman, that is Babylon, was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. You know, the sad reality is Babylon. The godless world system has always hated God, always hated those people who have followed after God. And Babylon, the godless world system, has persecuted believers down through the millennia. Skip, can you put that up? And in fact, they continue to do so. Babylon, the godless world system, continues to persecute the true believers. But we shouldn't be surprised by this at all because Jesus said on his final night on planet Earth in John 15, he spoke these words to his disciples. He left them with this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. 
As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You see, Jesus Christ, his kingdom, and his values stand in direct opposition to this world and this world system, again, of pride, of power, of greed, of money, and of immorality. And I'm going to tell you, as the Holy Spirit is lifted off not only our country, but this world, and one of the functions of the Holy Spirit, by the way, is to retard evil. And in the end of days, you're going to see the Holy Spirit more and more lifted off. And what's going to happen is the world system of pride, power, greed, money, and immorality, they're going to intensify. They're going to become greater. And the believer, that's us, we're going to become under greater and greater pressure to conform. And if you don't, you will be persecuted. You will experience persecution. And I believe we're going to see that almost all of us in our lifetimes for not joining them. Then the Apostle John says this next in the last half of verse 6. He says in chapter 17 of Revelation, When I saw her, the great prostitute Babylon, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why, John, are you astonished? Now watch very carefully and listen very carefully to what follows because I believe it's soon to happen upon this earth. I, the angel said, will explain to you the mystery of the woman, that is Babylon, and of the beast that she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Skip, can you put the picture up? Now the careful student of scripture will note the position of the woman, the great prostitute, with relation to the beast. You will notice that the woman, in some sense, controls the beast, which is the coming world ruler, the Antichrist, and his coming kingdom called the revived Roman Empire. And the obvious question is, how is this woman, the great prostitute Babylon, which again represents pride, power, greed, money, and immorality. How in the world is she able, in some sense, to control the coming world ruler, the Antichrist, and the rise of his kingdom? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The one great lesson we learn from history is we don't learn from history. History, though, does repeat itself. And God oftentimes, now listen to this, will telegraph and he will foreshadow what he's going to do in the future by a past event. For example, the rise of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, I believe clearly foreshadowed the rise of the coming world ruler, the Antichrist, and what we call the revived Roman Empire. Skip, you can put that up. Now, what makes Adolf Hitler of such great interest to us is this. Listen to this part. Hitler actually tried to grab power as early as 1923 in Germany. He, in fact, was part of a coup d'etat. The coup failed, and so Adolf Hitler went to prison for about a year. There he wrote a seminal work called Mein Kampf. Skip, you can put that up. Some of you may have had to read that while you were in school. Hitler, after a year, was released from prison. And after he was released from prison, he attempted to re-energize the Nazi party. But he was unable to gain traction with the German people. Now, what I'm going to say next ought to really, really somewhat terrify you and just, you know, send uh, shockwaves through you. 
Hitler, as I said, was not able to gain traction with the German people. And then, like I said, history repeats itself. Suddenly, 1929 came the year 1929. And if you know your history, in 1929, the United States stock market plummeted. And it literally sent shock waves economically throughout the world, even back in 1929. And Germany was especially affected. Not only did the unemployment rate skyrocket, but also the inflation rate reached triple digits. And Germany was in trouble. And then Adolf Hitler saw his chance. He saw his chance to exploit an incredible economic crisis, and he said to the German people, I can raise us out of the ashes like a phoenix. Germany will be strong again. I will make Germany a first-rate power economically and militarily. I will put you to work, and I will even give you a vacation plan and a health plan. And you know what history records? History records that the German people flocked to Adolf Hitler like lemmings going off a cliff. Skip, can you put that up? You know, some of you may be interested in politics. I was a political science major, and I'll never forget James Carville. Carville was actually the advisor or one of the chief advisors to Clinton. And you remember what he said in the early 90s and how Clinton won the election? He said, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy. It's always about the money. Just follow the money. It's always, always, it's the great elixir of mankind. Do you know why America is the greatest power in the the world? Anybody know why we're the greatest power? I'll tell you why we're the greatest power. It's because of capitalism. It is because of our wealth. And Babylon was the first to coin money, to create the potential for wealth. And that is why Babylon became the greatest of the ancient cities and the greatest of the ancient empires was because of her wealth. And I have been saying now for a while that America is under God's judgment. In fact, I gave you some very good reasons at the start of this series. So if you don't remember that message, please see that. You can just go to the Bethlehem Community Church website. You just click sermons and hit the first one, and there you will see a message entitled, It Has Started. And I made it clear in that message that God has been speaking to the United States for a while. He has been giving warnings to the United States for a while. He's been giving harbingers to this country for a while, and we haven't been listening. And now I am absolutely convinced that by September 2015, that's this year, that the United States will experience an incredible economic crisis that will just send an economic tsunami throughout the world. And I believe that the world will look for a savior, much as Germany did 85 years ago. And the world's going to find a savior. The world's going to find a savior much worse than Adolf Hitler. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. And then in verse 8 of chapter 17, the apostle John continues to talk and reveal the fullness of Babylon, money, and its relationship to the Antichrist and his empire. Now watch this. This is kind of interesting. We're going to go a little rapidly. Here we go. The beast, verse 8. Now remember, the beast can represent either the Antichrist, his empire, or both. It says this, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss to his destruction. A lot of people think that's cryptic. I am absolutely convinced that what this is being talked about here is none other than Nero. 
That's right, Nero, Skip, you can put up his picture. Nero is one of the great emperors of the Roman Empire. Nero became the poster child for the Antichrist, and here's why. Nero was the first to persecute Christians, not only in the Colosseum, but in the Circus Maximus. And the way this happened was in 64 AD, if you know your history, Rome was set ablaze. And most historians now are absolutely convinced it was none other than Nero that did it. And the reason why Nero did it is because he fancied himself not only as an actor, but as an architect. He had actually created a new Rome. And most historians are convinced that he actually set Rome ablaze to destroy all the old Roman architecture so they could build his buildings with his architectural style. This is absolutely true. Unfortunately for him, the public caught wind that was probably he who burned down much of Rome and caused a lot of their pain. And so they began to turn against him. So you know what he did? He had to find a scapegoat scapegoat quickly. You know who he found? He picked the Christians and he began to mercilessly persecute them. In fact, he began to use Christians Christians as human candles that would light his garden. Skip, can you put that picture up? It was horrible what Hitler did to the Christians. Or Nero did to the Christians. In fact, in 68 AD, though, public opinion again, you know, went against him and he committed suicide. Many of the Christians believed, though, that he would rise again. They were deathly afraid that he would come to life again. And so he became the poster for the Antichrist who was, now is not, and shall rise again. Now, I do not believe that Nero is going to rise again and become the new world ruler. But I do believe it is possible that the new world ruler will actually take the name Nero. Now, watch this. It says this. The inhabitants... Of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they say, see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. So the world's going to be amazed when they see this coming world ruler who I believe will probably take the name Nero. But even more, what will amaze him is you know what his title will be? Pontifus Maximus, which means supreme ruler. And then we're told this. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads of the beast are seven hills on which the woman sits. So, you know, Babylon, by the way, is not just a world system, you know, of pride, power, greed, money, and immorality. It's actually going to be localized in a place. It's going to be localized in none other than Rome. Skip, can you put that graphic up? Rome, of course, has been known as a city built on seven hills. And in the future, we're going to see that Rome, not New York will be Wall Street, but Rome, I believe, will become the center of the Antichrist empire, and it will become the new Wall Street. And then we're told this. It says, also... They, that is, the seven heads are also seven kings or kingdoms, I believe is a better interpretation. Five have fallen. What are the five kingdoms that have fallen, the five great empires at that time that had fallen 2,000 years ago? They are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Those are the five that had fallen. John said one is. That, of course, would be Rome, which was still alive and very powerful at its time. And then it says, watch this, the other has not yet come. That is, the revived Roman Empire has not yet come. 
But when he or it does come, it must remain for a little while. We know that little less than seven years. Now watch this, verse 11. The beast who once was, now is not, is an eighth king. That's a reference to the Antichrist and is ruling over the Seventh Empire, the revived Roman Empire, which is an amalgamation, in other words, of all of the great empires. And it says he belonged to the seven and will ultimately go to his destruction. The ten horns you saw, verse 12, are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. There are ten coming world rulers, by the way. They will be underneath the Antichrist. And then it says, but who for one hour will also receive authority. One hour is a short time, less than seven years. Will receive authority as kings along with the beast that is the Antichrist. Watch this. They have one purpose. They will give their power and authority to the beast, the Antichrist and his empire. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And with him will be his called, chosen, faithful followers. That's going to be us. That's speaking, by the way, the battle of Armageddon. Now watch this, verse 15. It's kind of fascinating and forward. It says, then the angel said to me, the waters you saw, Where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Isn't that something? Babylon controls all the people of the earth. Money. Money. Do you know ultimately what that's saying is that what we all ultimately worship when a push comes to shove is money. That should be really a very scary thing to us all because that's going to be what it's going to be most people's undoing. Then it says this, the beast, now here's what people find fascinating. And the beast and the ten horns you saw, that's the coming rulers, the Antichrist, they will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire for God has put it in their hearts to accomplish this purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the earth. That's clearly Rome. So what we see in these last verses is kind of interesting. It says that the Antichrist, along with his 10 minions, is actually going to burn or destroy Babylon, which is going to be localized in a place called Rome, the city of Rome. It's going to become the new economic center of the world, the center of world commerce. And the Antichrist, along with his 10 minions, are going to destroy Rome, the center of commerce. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. Why would they do that? Verse 17, it's awesome. Look what it says. It says that God will put it in the heart of the Antichrist and these 10 minions to do this. You know what's just got to burn Satan up? Because remember, the Antichrist is possessed by Satan. You know what just burns him up? He knows in the deep recesses of his evil mind that everything he does ultimately serves the purposes of God. It's just got to burn him up. And what's absolutely astonishing, it says, in the end of days, the Antichrist, who was possessed by Satan and his evil empire, are going to carry out God's bidding, and they are going to destroy the greatest idol man has ever had, money. And they will do this by destroying the center of world commerce in the future, which is the great city of Rome. 
And we see this vividly, by the way, described in Revelation chapter 18. Skip, can you just put it up? In Revelation 18, it's a parallel chapter to Revelation 17. And you see Babylon talked about it in economic terms. And watch what it says. It says, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and they will mourn over her, terrified at her torment. They will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice and incense, myrrh and frankincense of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies of the souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you, all your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. I'll tell you, the merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from them will stand far off, terrified at her, in torment. They will weep and they will mourn. They will cry, woe, woe is the great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such, watch this, great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors, all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. They will see Rome just burning up. Skip, you can put up that picture. Now, you know, I've been asked, why in the world would Satan, who possesses the Antichrist, want to do this? I mean, I think that's a fair question. Listen to this answer as we just wind down here really quickly. The answer lies in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you cannot serve two masters. You will hate the one and you will love the other. You will delight in the one or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's true, by the way, also for Satan. That is absolutely true. You see, and remember I said, Satan seeks to mimic God. Watch, in fact, what God says to Satan through a taunt from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah back 2,700 years ago. In a taunt against the king of Babylon, God is actually talking to Satan. Skip, put it up. It's found in Isaiah chapter 14. It says this, how you have fallen from heaven. Now, remember, God is really not talking to the king of Babylon. He's really talking directly to Satan. O morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mount. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your faith. You see, Satan wants to be worshipped. He wants to be totally worshipped. And he wants to be worshipped through his man, the Antichrist. And he does not want you or I actually worshipping money or the economic system that he set up. So he destroys it in the end because he doesn't want any competitors. And so here's my challenge to you this morning. My challenge to you is this. How many here, how many here say that I want a vibrant relationship with the living God? I mean, you want to come to a point in your life where you just experience his presence. You hear his voice for your life. I mean, you have a deep 
passionate relationship with God. How many here would just like to have that? Seriously, just raise your hands. Do you know that they've done a study on on, uh, American Christians? Over 70% of American Christians say that they have really never heard the voice of God. They've really never in a profound way experienced his presence. And I find that sad. I really find that tragic because that's what we were made for. Why in the world don't we experience his presence and his power? You know, there's one man in the Old Testament who stands out among all the other men in terms of his relationship with God. Do you know who that is? Anybody? Sounds like tongues to me. All right, you just got to to yell it out. Moses. Moses the Magnificent. You know... It's it's Exodus 33, and we got to cut to the chase. But Moses had an incredible relationship with he he did God did something for him that he did for no one else. Moses asked for something. God acquiesces to it. You know what Moses asked for? Moses said, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. Now the context of this is. Is, is, is the Israelites had sinned incredibly because they build this, this golden calf and they begin worshiping metal. Can you believe it? How stupid can you get? But God is a, uh, is a man of, is a God of his promise. And he said, I'm going to give you the promised land, Moses, like I said. You can go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but you're going to do it without me. And you know what Moses said to him? Moses said, look, God, I don't care how big the fruit is there. I don't care about a comfortable life. I don't care about living in paradise. I want to see you. If you're not there, I don't want it. You know, you want to tickle God? No, no. You want to just tickle God. Seek his face and not his hand. You know, you can move God. I do believe that. I believe you can move God. You can move God. I can move God. But it comes when we seek his face and not his hand. You know, the prodigal son's a great story. The prodigal son thought the greatest thing to have was the father's inheritance, to have money, you know, and he spent it all. He spent it all. And there he ends up in a pig pen. And while he's in the pig pen, you know what he realized? He realized the greatest thing to have was the father. When he had the father, he had everything. When you have the father, you have it all. So here's my challenge to you. Worship team, come on up. Here's the challenge. Here's what I've, it's changed my life completely changed my life. This one thing right here. I wake up in the morning and I no longer ask God for anything except one thing. I say, Lord, I just want to know you in every situation you bring my way. I'm asking for your will to be accomplished in my life. So I'm inviting his will. But here's the most important thing. I said, I want to know you. I want to know you in every circumstance that I find myself in today. If you do that, what's going to happen is it will radically change how you view your circumstances. Didn't change them. I didn't say that. 
but it's going to radically change how you see your circumstance. And once you see him in your circumstance, then you begin to overcome. That's the key to overcoming. You wonder how some people overcome and some people just seem to fall under their circumstance. You fall because like Job, if you don't see God in it, it just destroys you and demotivates you. But when you see God in your circumstance, it gives you the motivation and the power to overcome. Father, I pray everyone will take this challenge. It is so life-changing. It is so life-changing. So often we try to find life in circumstances, whether it be a person, whether it be a job, whether it be making a sales, whether it be getting a particular victory. We try to find life in that, and it's always fading, and we become emptier and emptier. And we don't realize that you're the prize, and the goal is to find you, is to see you in our circumstances. And then they take on a whole new light. I pray, I pray that we as a congregation will literally take up that challenge every single day and be overcomers. I ask for this in your precious name.